recorded live. Dragons of Silicon, where we prefer to decide nature versus nurture without swords. Welcome to a new episode of uh, Fragments of Silicon. Uh, I'm your host, Adam, and joining me uh, in the studio this week are Ogre. Yo. Teddy Fan. Yay. Galix. So I am. And making his grand re-debut to the program, Mac. Hello, everybody. Yeah, so <laughs> if you've been following our news feeds on the show recently, you know, Mac has been promised to return for a couple of months here. And, well, now he finally got some time to show up on the program every other week. Right. Uh, it's like, so, like, going forward, Mac will be here every uh, two weeks until, I guess, his schedule changes. Right. That's the general plan. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um... Also, keep in mind, MSP has returned, so we have a show at uh, 11 o'clock again. So we don't have the uh, time parameters we used to, so we're dispensing with the news this week and getting straight to the interview. Um, and joining us uh, this week is um, uh, you know, a, uh, a veteran of many industries, <laughs> not just one. Uh, we welcome Robert Woodhead, of, um, formerly of SureTech and currently of Animego. Oh, good evening. Yes. How are you doing tonight? Fine, thank you. Oh, that's good to hear. All right, so we usually like to start our interviews with this question. Um, how did you first uh, get interested in video games? Uh, well, um, I guess it, it started in the early 70s. Um, uh, I was uh, exposed to uh, this thing called computers, when I was in high school, um, and uh, I got the opportunity to use uh, the closest computer to me, which was uh, about 30 miles away at uh, a local college, and um, I was given access to it on weekends, and uh, my mother would drive me up there in the morning on Saturday, drive home, and then in the evening come and pick me up again. And uh, that's where I started um, uh, learning how to program. And, of course, uh, one of the few books you could get uh, that was a source of information about how to, how to program was 101 basic computer games. Uh, and so I uh, typed some of them in, and uh, that's how I got into it. Did you have to use the hexadecimal keyboard? I uh, know the first computer I got to use was a P80, mm -hmm. which was a little mini computer. Um, didn't have a hard drive. It used a uh, little reel-to-reel -reel tape, deck tape, oh. and uh, had a little 80 by 24 CRT terminals. Damn. Yeah. Uh, 
I, I'm like, this is like the second time in a month we've had somebody go all the way back to the 70s. <laughs> I'm, in, I'm in heaven just listening to this stuff right here. I'm quite the technophile. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, technically, the first computer I ever programmed was um, the Cardiac. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of that. Uh, the Cardiac it was the Bell Labs cardboard computer, and it was literally a, a computer simulator that, uh, that was made out of a piece of cardboard. And when you erased your RAM on that computer, you actually erased it with a pencil eraser. Yes. Wow. Uh, the, the Google Cardboard of its era. Uh, yeah, well, actually, you can still get Cardiacs. They, they still sell them. Wow. Mm. So, so this is like, what, 1972-73? I'd say sometime around there, yeah. yeah. So um, what kind of games were you playing uh, on these mainframes? Oh, yeah. There was, you know, Lunar Lander, Mugwump. I think the original, somebody put the original adventure on it. That kind of thing. Ah. What, uh, did these computers, were, were they connected up to, like, ARPANET? Uh, no. Um, the other computer that I eventually got access to was um, the Dartmouth time-sharing system, which ran over teletypes. And you, you, if you wanted to save a program, you, you literally um, put it on the punched paper tape on the teletype. Uh, I wonder how foreign this sounds to a lot of our audience, because we tend to skew young, although we've had a lot of old stuff on the program in more recent times. I think I'm, like, just old enough that I could, I at least remember reading about some of this stuff. Yeah, I had to see about some of this stuff for a class back in high school, so... Yeah. I, I remember being six years old in 1983 and running punch cards through the old IBM oh, Model 80s, I think it was, that they had at Southwestern Community College for my dad. Yep. And you learned real quickly to take a magic marker and draw some lines on the side of the deck, so if you dropped it, you could use the lines to reconstruct the deck in the right order. <laughs> a, a, a technique that I still use to this day to make sure that I put my paper in my HP laser printer the right way. <laughs> Some techniques never go out of style, but um, yeah. Uh, like, did you ever play Space War? Um, not the uh, traditional Space War, no. Hmm. Yeah, um, that required uh, a graphic display, and neither of the early computers that I had access to had a graphic display. They were all text-based. Right. Uh, well, did, did they come out in, like, uh, teletype? Yeah, tele, uh, teletype or teletype simulator on a CRT. Yeah. Yeah. How do we, like, yeah. So, yeah, the, we're going back so far that, yeah, computers oftentimes didn't have displays. They would actually print out uh, their... Uh, computations. Right. <laughs> oh, but, uh, so what was your favorite uh, game of that era? Uh, I like playing the Star Trek game. Oh, jeez. I, th I think I remember playing a version of that. There, there have been many, many versions of that game over the years. It's a text-based game where you have to plot a course and all that stuff. Yeah, and you you move from sector to sector, and and you have to you know find the 
the enemy ships and, and kill them, and you get to use phasers and photon computers and stuff like that. You know, so, uh, for its time, it was a lot of fun, and you could play it on a teletype. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were a lot of games like that that you know, mentioned. That, some of them like Colossal Cave Adventure and uh, Hunt the Wumpus. Mm-hmm, yep. Yeah. And, of course, like Sork and uh, shit, Morgan Trail. Not many people know and that actually started out as a teletype game back in 1975. Actually, I didn't know that. So there you go. See, our program is educational. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm like... Uh, so, did you, I assume uh, you also played uh, Dungeons and Dragons? Uh, when I got to college. Played uh, the original Dungeons and Dragons. There was a very active um, Dungeons and Dragons group at uh, the college I went to. And um, I would basically play all weekend. What kind of campaign uh, did you do? Uh, did you DM, uh, or were you just a? Eventually, I did a little DMing, but mostly I was a player. Hmm. And what kind of scenarios would you run through? Well, back in those those days, the, the all the scenarios were you know designed by the actual dungeon masters. Right. And actually, we had uh, our group was big enough that we had multiple dungeon masters, and um, they would actually. Um, enter the results of any particular adventure onto punch cards and then they used uh, the the mainframe at at the college to keep track of everybody's experience points and things like that so that uh, the next weekend every dungeon master got a printout of the status of every character in the campaign. Mm, That sounds about right. Yeah. Very technological for the time though, I'm sure. Oh yeah. Supremely high tech. Yeah, and it's also where I mentioned um, D and D and A D and D back in those game uh, days was a lot more, not so much simpler, but it didn't have the range of scenarios that it had even like in the late, uh, mid eighties. You know, it was all, if you will, just Greyhawk. Like you know, there was no Forgotten Realms, Dragonlance, or any of that. Well, like I said. Uh, very few times did we actually play the any like pre-designed adventures. It was all stuff that the dungeon masters had created. They created their own worlds and their own campaigns. Mm, makes sense. Um, did you play any other role-playing games? Not really. That's about all I had time for. <laughs> right. Uh, so. Tell us about your college experience. Uh, what, uh, what kind of programming were you aiming for? Well, um, I went to college and I wanted to be a computer science major, but my college didn't have a computer science major, so I ended up having a, sort of an unofficial minor in computer science. Um, I spent, um, so I spent a lot of time doing computer science courses, um, I also uh, eventually worked at one of the first computer stores, and um, I worked as a teaching assistant doing uh, programming, um, and uh, eventually got my own PC, uh, a TRS-80 as it happens, and started programming on that. I was also a big fan of the Plato system, which uh, you know uh, a lot of the people who 
went on to, to do early work in the computer games field came out of Plato. Um, so that was a big influence on me. I don't think we've talked about the Plato system on this uh, show before. Uh, can you elaborate what that is? Um, well, basically everything you love about games mm -hmm. and internet communications and stuff like that was basically invented on Plato um, in the late 60s and early 70s. Mm -hmm. um, by 1976, they had a nationwide, nationwide network of terminals. These terminals had 512 by 512 pixel graphics, programmable character sets, line drawing, uh, microfiche projectors, uh, a primitive touch panel, um, and hundreds of people online at any one time. Uh, so multiplayer games, um, chat, desk accessories, uh, news groups, nationwide email, all of that was uh, largely done initially on the Plato system. Wow. Uh, so yeah, so much came out of that. All right, so how did you meet uh, Andrew C. Greenberg? Uh, actually, we were both users of Plato on um, at Cornell, and uh, uh, we um, eventually, um, you know, got together later on to to uh, collaborate on Wizardry. But initially, we were we were users of Plato. And uh, did you guys get along at first? Um, at first. Maybe not so much, but you know, I wasn't the most socially adept. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but um, and you know, then when we got to working together, um, we had a very intense collaborative relationship, um, which uh, sometimes, you know, got us on, on each other's bad side. Mm -hmm. um, but um, we're, you know. We're now at a point where uh, we're very close friends. That's good. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know there are some people like uh, you know who, who just have never patched up things, uh, even after all the decades have flown, uh, and that's always unfortunate. All right. Uh, so another uh, pretty standard question of ours is: When did you decide, or how did you know you could uh, make video games for a living? <laughs> um, Magic. I think it was probably about a month after Wizardry came out. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, up until then, I thought, well, maybe if I get really lucky, it might pay off my school loans, and then I'll have to get a real job. Um, this, this sounds a lot like my process of making an animated motion picture this year. Yeah. Uh, it's... Uh, I basically did the games work that I did because I enjoyed it mm -hmm. and uh, because I found it an interesting challenge. And uh, the fact that, you know, I, I think um, Steve Martin said it best in one of his early comedy routines where he was, you know, he's doing his banjo thing right. and he's, he's singing and he, and, he, and he does this song about comedy and at the end of it he says, and the very best thing about comedy is, Strum, I get paid for doing this. 
<laughs> and that's basically how I felt about it. Um, uh, I would have been very happy if if I had just made enough to like pay off my school bills and you know maybe you know make a car payment or two. <laughs> All right, so I, I guess we have to kind of rewind a bit and um, talk about this. Uh, were you there at the foundation of Surtech? Uh, yes. All right, and uh, how did you get, uh, get convinced into going in with this endeavor? Um, well, uh, basically, uh, with six months to go um, in my college career, I was asked to take a one-year vacation um, because of low grades, uh, messing around with computers too much was a contributing factor to that. Um, and so I was, um, I spent the entire year sleeping on my mother's couch. She was so upset with me that she wouldn't uh, allow me to sleep in a bed. Um, but as it turned out, my mother had a business partner, Fred Suratak, who'd invested in uh, our family business after my father had died. Um, and uh, he needed somebody to write some inventory software for another one of his companies. Um, and so I ended up doing that for him. Um, and um, along the way, after I'd done that, I started playing around with writing some other software for the Apple II, since we now had an Apple II uh, available. Um, and uh, I came up with a, a very simple database sort of uh, program that allowed you to uh, keep notes in a tree-structured format. Um, and one of Fred's sons uh, saw it and thought that there was a business opportunity there. Um, so, um, we decided to, uh, start a little company and, and see what could be done. I kind of get the impression that Fred thought it might be, uh, sort of an interesting little training exercise for his sons, because he had two sons who wanted to become business people. Um, and, uh, I don't think he, he or any of us had any idea, uh, where it would eventually lead to. Um, so that's why the initial name of the company was Serotech because it was just a, a pun on his name. Um, but uh, after uh, it became an actual real company, uh, we, the name got tweaked a little bit, uh, so it wasn't quite so close to his own personal name. I was wondering about that. Right. Uh, so uh, wizardry. Right. Uh, uh, I suppose the first question I ask you here is, how did you come up with the idea for the game? Well, um, I was a huge player of Dungeons & Dragons. Um, there were uh, Dungeons & Dragons style games on Play-Doh uh, that I enjoyed playing a lot. And uh, I, had the, I just had this feeling that, you know, maybe something like that could be done on... Uh, this tiny little Apple II. Um, so uh, I came up with the idea of trying to do a dungeon game. Um, and uh, actually, the, uh, I started um, designing it, uh, and I had what I thought was a great name for it. it was, I was going to call it Paladin. Um, but 
by absolute chance, and I, I really have no recollection of the exact details of how it happened, I happened to get in contact with Andrew. Um, and, you know, back in those days, we didn't have texting or instant messaging, so it actually was significantly harder to get in touch with people than, than it was uh, than it is now. I mean, you actually had to phone them or write them a letter. Um, but in any case, um, I got in touch with him, and it turned out that he was also working on a dungeon game. Um, and he'd actually written an early version of it in Apple's, Apple Basic. Um, and so he was a bit further along in the development process, um, but I had a better development environment since I had Apple Pascal, uh, which allowed you to do significantly more powerful programs. Um, and he also had this insanely good name, Wizardry. So we decided that we would join forces and uh, uh, I would do most of the programming because he was still a graduate student and he would do the design of the scenario and uh, the playtesting. And uh, so that's how that project all got started. Well, uh, was he close by physically? Or? Uh, I was in Ogdensburg, New York. He was in Ithaca still about three hours away. Oh, jeez. So did that make collaborating uh, difficult? Um, just slower. You couldn't just, like, you know, email him a file. You had to send him a disk. And then you had to, like, follow it up with a phone, uh, phone call or a letter. I mean, you know, the pace of life was a little bit slower back then. Uh, I mean, the... The area you're talking about is a bit before mine of cognizance, but I still remember how, how things were slow, like in the late 80s, early 90s. Thing. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, by the way. Because uh, the fact that you weren't as connected um, meant that you were also not as much interrupted, which could be a very good thing at times. I could make no statement on uh, such things. It's just, you know, the world is the way it is. Indeed. Uh, it's like, the, yeah. I'll, I will also note that, you know, if one really wanted to, they could, you know, like not use the Internet or smartphones or what have you for a measure of time. Uh, depends on what you're trying to do. I know, but I'm just saying, you know, some, you can take a vacation from that stuff if you, if you can. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so uh, how did the collaboration work then? Um, like, uh, or rather, did you have any inputs on, like, the characters or the storyline, or was it just pure programming? Um, we designed the um, the basic data structures and got those. We, we got together and, and worked out how we wanted those to work. Um, that provided the framework for doing um, the actual sort of implementation of the scenario. And then I went back and wrote a bunch of editor programs um, that let Andrew, you know, build the mazes and, and things like that. Um, and uh, then on t while he was doing that, uh, I 
went and started writing the first version of the program that would execute that basically database um, and uh, and run the game. Um, and uh, so the, the uh, process of building the scenario and testing out all the different things you could do in the game and building the game sort of proceeded in parallel for about a year, I guess. And as I understand it, uh, this game was a bit uh, advanced for the Apple II? Well, um, we, you know, as everybody back in in that time, you, you, you had a lot of restrictions of in the hardware and limitations in memory and disk and things like that. Uh, so you wanted to get the the most bang for your buck. And um, f- fortunately, uh, we made a good choice in, in writing the game in UCSD Pascal um, because uh, that, um, whereas it's not as fast as writing it in, in assembly language, um, the trade-off you get is your program doesn't run as fast, but because it's uh, it's compiled to an interpreted uh, form, um, the final program is a lot more compact, which allowed us to stuff in more sort of game logic into the game. Um, and then we had to do a bunch of tricks in order to uh, get it to fit on on the actual diskette because we only had I think I think what is it. 140k on each side of the disk. I, I, Sounds I, about right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Not very much. When you got 48k of RAM and 100, uh, 140k of, of disk, I mean, um, you you have to be uh, pretty careful in how you do things. Indeed. Uh, well, like one of the things you couldn't really do back in those days and really all through the 80s, was had the story in the game. I remember many a CRPG uh, having to have whatever backstory and text, like uh, in uh, the manuals. Sure, we did that. Uh, You know, uh, I think the thing to keep in mind is that um, whenever anybody sets out to write a game, they they write it within the context of the technological limitations that they have at the time. Um, so, um, and, you know, because if you know that you can't do something, then you either find a different way of doing it or you find a different way of telling your story that doesn't require that. And, well, was there much of a story to the first Wizardry game? Um, it was only the very basic, uh, you know, quest of going down, finding the evil wizard, and um, right. and killing him, and, and that that you know, basically, the the initial game only had one quest. Um, there were a lot of little extra things we put into the game, almost like Easter eggs, mm-hmm. um, uh, that we we used to uh, to test out the the sort of the hooks that we had in order to to do various things, um, but you know we, we basically uh, we had a trade off um, between having a, a more complicated story and um, having a more complicated environment, um, and so we chose 
to have the more complicated environment with a bigger dungeon rather than have a more complicated story. Also, we were, um, as, a, as, a, as is the case with many of these things, you're sort of making it up as you go along mm-hmm. in terms of you do something and you figure out what it lets you to do uh, and you, know, you, you find out where the brick walls are. Um, so, uh, so the, the game and the scenario and, and the story and the, the environment all sort of, you know, evolved, um, in sort of, it's sort of co-evolution, I guess. You know, if our, if, if we had, for example, been writing it for initially for an IBM PC, I think the game would have come out differently because that had significantly more resources. It's definitely possible. You know, it's like it's one of those things that uh, you, know, you can speculate. But you know. uh, yeah. Uh, well, uh, speaking of CRPGs, uh, did you ever play Ultima while you were making this group? Uh Not while I was making it. Um, I actually didn't play a lot of the other games that are out there other than just like quickly looking at them. I literally didn't have the time. Makes sense. <laughs> uh, I was probably working and programming between 80 and 100 hours a week for several years. Wow. <laughs> and people think French time is a new thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we didn't know that's what it was called. I'm like... Indeed, it was just working 100 hours a week. Although I will point out that on Wizardry 4, we were basically two years late getting the game done, and for the last year of it, we were honestly and legitimately convinced that it was going to be ready next week for an entire year. (laughs) Well, uh, that'll be interesting when we get more into sequels. But uh, you know, on the original Wizardry, was it difficult creating more than one character class? Um, you know, for the Apple II. No, no, that that wasn't a particularly difficult thing to do. I mean, um, you know, once you decide that you want more than one character in the game, that that becomes a um, pretty standard thing. And from what I remember and from what I've seen, they're the pretty, you know, they're the standard um, races and classes. Humans, elves, dwarves, gnomes, hobbits, uh, fighter, priests, mages, and thieves. Yeah, basically. And we had some some mixed classes, too. Right. Right. Uh, uh, And how big was the first wizardry game in terms of dungeon uh, I had 10 levels, each one of which was 20 by 20 squares. Right. And we could, we could do things like uh, secret doors, one-way doors, rotators, dark areas, teleporters. That actually sounds pretty um, advanced for 1981. Um, it, it's just sort of the way those things happen is you just look at, you know, what kind of things did you run into when we were playing a D&D adventure? You know, can, can you do something like that on this computer? You know, do you have the bits? If you do, you do it. 
Right. And so what was the most difficult aspect of making uh, the first Lucifer game? Probably getting it to fit on the disc. Oh, yeah, well, given the constraints you were working with, that that sounds like getting a very big thing into a smaller thing. <laughs> um, the way we ended up doing it was that the wizardry disc was two-sided, and um, the the first side contained the operating system and the game. And the second side contained the game and the database. Uh, and the, um, the, it was set up so that, that uh, on both sides, the um, game was on the exact same sectors. So that um, when uh, the game needed to swap in different bits of code, it would just blindly go off to the disk. But because the sectors on both sides were in those locations were the same, it would load up the right data. Meanwhile, that meant we once we'd flipped the disk, uh, we could take all the space that had been uh, consumed by the operating system and use it for the database. Wow. Now, what was the double disk uh, recent invention, or, that, or was that uh, a thing on the Apple II prior to this agreement? Well, no, the, the Apple II could only read one side of the disk at a time. Hmm. So you would boot up the game, get it running, and then it would tell you to take out the disk, flip it, and put it back in. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, okay, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, disk flipping. I, I might not have experienced that with, uh, say, floppy disks, but I remember CD-ROMs back in the 90s. Same principle. More or less, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, so what was distributing uh, the first version of your game like? Uh, you know, how different was it from uh, even like a, a year or two later? Well, um, there were a couple of uh, software distributors. Mm -hmm. um, the big one at the time, I believe, was a company called SoftCell um, that would distribute to all the computer stores. So you basically had a couple of distributors that, uh, that you sold to, um, that then uh, sold to all the computer stores, and there were a couple of magazines that um, where you could place ads and that did uh, reviews and editorial and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, that was basically it. It was pretty simple. Yeah. I think this was early enough where they didn't even have, like, boxes. It's just Ziploc bags. Uh, at that time, almost all software came in in Ziploc bags. Wizardry, however, I believe was one of the first games or first programs, period, to, to come out in a box. Oh, wow, impressive. Now, we uh, didn't know what we were doing, so we said put it in a box. Well, I mean, that, that's pretty much this entire period. Uh, this, is, this is the formative primordia of video games. Uh, I mean, we've talked about this on the show many times before, but like, you know, the, the 70s right up to the early 80s, even up to the 90s, you know, it's, we're seeing video games establish themselves as, well, video games. And Wizardry, we'll get into the legacy a bit later, but Wizardry is a huge keystone in that development. Uh, anyway, uh, so did you, after Wizardry, did you get to make a sequel, or did you start working on porting the game? 
both. Okay. And uh, uh, yeah, how, how did that work? Well, one, another advantage of writing things in, in Apple Pascal was that the operating system was portable. So if you could write a, um, a UCSD Pascal interpreter for any particular machine, uh, uh, you, you could pretty much run the game without any, all you'd have to do is uh, update a few assembly language routines to handle the actual low-level graphics and update the, the graphics, and your game would run. Um, and uh, so, uh, in fact, um, later on when I was writing Wizardry 4, I actually wrote Wizardry 4 on a NEC PC9801, which was a Japanese MS-DOS machine. And I would boot it up into DOS, and then I'd you know, type a command line, and suddenly I'd see, welcome to Apple Pascal, and I was in the Pascal development environment. <laughs> Ah, uh, the PC ninety eight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> great games. Some great games on that system from Japan. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, um, uh, you know, I have. I went over to Japan for several months to to help with the localization uh, into Japanese, and uh, they wrote interpreters for like all sorts of different machines. Yeah. I do want to talk a bit more about Japanese computers because we rarely get a chance to talk about uh, the computers that dominated the Japanese scene in the 80s. Uh, I mean, uh, what computer, like, what computers did you port Wizardry to? Oh my goodness, um, I'm just trying to remember. Uh, the, basically, we hit all the major ones. There was the NEC machines. There was a there was a machine based on the 6809 processor. Um, you know, the, the, the Japanese market was very fragmented, um, but um, that was one area where we had a big advantage because, you know, once we had uh, got the interpreter running, then all of the Wizardry series could be put out on that machine, on that particular brand of machine very quickly. Did you ever work on the MSX? I don't really remember. Uh, when I was working on the Japanese Wizardries, I was actually working on the, um, the higher level aspects of it, in particular um, rewriting the game so we could abstract out all of the text in the game to a, um, a database. Um, so that uh, yeah, it, whenever you would, um, hold on a sec, my screen just went blank. <laughs> there. I hope I didn't lose. I hope I didn't lose you. No. Okay. Well, yeah. Uh, we we needed to have a way so that um, we had to make minimal changes to the uh, to the game so that it uh, you could play it in Japanese or English or any of the other languages we eventually ported to. And and so we we kind of built a very primitive localization system um, where like basically all the text in the game was in another database. You swap the database, and suddenly the the game is talking to you in Japanese. Mm. Uh, now, did you do the translation to like Japanese yourself, or was that up to the interpreter? That was up to to other people. Um, I basically my job was to um, 
get it to a point where they had a bunch of templates that they could translate. Right. And it's worth noting with this action, I'm like, the this realm and scope of wizardry just took on a new dimension. Well, no. To talk about the legacy of wizardry, it's one of the games that influenced not just uh, CRPGs, you know, Bard's Tale and uh, ADD and all that, but it basically helped create the JRPG. And I don't think a lot of people know that. No. Uh, yeah. Well, I actually would take a little bit of issue with 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 what you're saying there in terms of um, you know, I, I view Wizardry as just one game in a sort of a continuum. Uh, it, was, it was inspired by things that other people had done earlier on different computers. Oh, indeed. Uh, what, I'm and, saying, what, what I'm saying is Wizardry is an important link in that chain. It, it's, it's a link in the chain, but um, I think that most people who, you know, have sort of built links in that chain would agree with me when, when if, if you ask them mm. that, um, you know, it wasn't inevitable, you know, if, if, you know, we were in the right place at the right time right. with a couple of decent ideas of, you know, where to go, you know, where people had taken, people had brought us to a certain point and then we had a couple of bright ideas of like, maybe we can go over and add these things and do that and try this. Um, and if we hadn't done it, then six months, a year from now, later, somebody else would have done it. So, um, whereas I understand, you know, how it is part of that, that sort of um, evolutionary uh, tree, uh, just like evolution itself, it's not a tree, it's a bush. Right. And um, you know, the, the, um, the, from the perspective of how I now look at it in terms of like you know, having watched things develop for like, you know, how long, 35 years now, um, it's, a, it's nice and I enjoyed working on it and I, I, you know, I, I like that, you know, people enjoy it and, and, you know, maybe we're inspired a little bit by it, but I, I, I have a, a much better perspective of, of sort of my place. Hmm. You know what I mean? I do. I do. I mean, it's definitely not the only game that helped like build JRPGs or anything, but it's, what I'm saying is it's one of them. But like, for example, uh, Dragon Quest, um, Ogre, what does Yuji Hori do on Dragon Quest games? He's the creator of the games. Right. I mean, well, he's like co-creator along with, what, uh, Akira Toriyama? He got Akira Toriyama to do the artwork. Well, Ogre, maybe you can help me with what I'm trying to say. Yuji Hori has said, like, he's the Yuji Horus said that he's been inspired by Wizardry and Ultima to make the Dragon Quest series because he wanted to create something like that for the consoles. Right. Because Wizardry kind of had seemed to have a problem to get to the consoles. I don't know, Robert. Maybe you can help feel them. Did you have any involvement in like bringing Wizardry to the NES or the Famicom? Uh, no, actually, I didn't. Um, by that point. 
Um, I was, I'm not quite sure of the chronology, but, um, you know, after Wizardry 4, uh, I had a parting of the ways with my partners at Surtac. Um, so, and that, the NES stuff would probably have been around that time. And also, uh, you know, I had pretty much done everything that was needed to, um, to port Wizardry to pretty much anything. It was... You know, so there wasn't too much I could add to that, I don't think. Fair enough, fair enough. But, uh, yeah, so um, when it comes to developing the sequels, um, how did you expand and build upon the uh, each successive game up to Wizard before? Well, we, we tried to make the graphics a little better. We tried to, you know, build extra capabilities into the engine as required for the scenarios. Um, you know, we, we experimented uh, with, with different things. But, you know, like I said before, we were basically making it up as we going al- go along. And, and uh, you come up, you, there was really no kind of like way to do this. You know what I mean? Uh, so everybody, everybody was just um, doing their own thing and, and trying to see what worked. It was sort of like a Cambrian explosion. Yeah. You know, there was, a, there, was a, there was a big sort of ecosystem to, to fill. And so everybody was, was trying out their different ideas and some of them worked and some of them didn't. And, um, you know, that's just the way it goes. Yeah, the language and the tropes of uh, you know, like computer role-playing games and really gaming in general was being built during this time. It's like, you know, to it, there were no trends beforehand, so you had to establish those trends. Now, um, was working, uh, now were they all built in like Apple Pascal up to Wizardry 4? Uh, yes. Right. In fact, Wizardry 5 was too. And, well, did that get harder to work with as, like, the Apple IIs got more advanced and, you know, like, uh, other computers got more advanced? Um, to a certain extent, yeah. I mean, um, it, you know, we, we, we were both uh, – we, uh, what's the right way to put this? The fact that it was so easy to port things between various machines was both a – uh, it, it was both wonderfully freeing and, you know, made the development process a lot easier, but it was also restricting in some ways because you had to be concerned about least common denominator issues. Um, in terms of like, well, we can't do that because we won't be able to do that on the Commodore 64. Mm, I see. And, and so you... Uh, so that was an issue that eventually got resolved because, um, you know, by three or four years down the line, by the late 80s, you know, basically, you know, the PC had won. Um, so you didn't really have to worry too much about the porting. You just worked for the PC, and that was like 90% of the market. <laughs> this is true. But by then, it wasn't my problem. <laughs> uh. So, 
So I, I suppose we should talk a bit more about Wizardry 4. I think this is actually one of the more infamous ones, if I'm remembering correctly. It's like it's the one that's really hard to beat. Uh, yeah, I, would, I think that's a fair justification, a fair, a fair comment. Yes. Uh, like uh, I just like uh, like this is like one of the most difficult games that's ever been made, or some such. Like I, I just heard about its reputation. I gotta admit, I I was I, I've never been into the Wizardry series because, well, I don't know, I, I just wasn't there. But uh, you know, I certainly know its reputation. But um, anyway, so uh, what, what what's behind the uh, the I guess legendary difficulty of Wizardry Four? Well, um, Wizardry Four was des- the the scenario was designed by Roe Adams. And Roe Adams was a pretty famous gamer back in the day. Uh, he was like the first guy to actually finish Time Zone, if I recall correctly, which was Sarah Online's like massive graphic adventure game, um, which was itself considered legendarily difficult. And so the idea we had um, was to do a game that was very, very, very difficult, but also fair in terms of the puzzles. Um, and, you know, in retrospect, probably the, not the best way to spend two and a half years of development effort. Um, but like I said, we, we were really experimenting with, with what we could do, and, and we wanted to push things to the absolute limit. Um, and uh, you know, I think we did some interesting things in the game. Um, you know, it's not the sort of game that anybody having the benefit of hindsight would have probably wanted to invest that much time and effort into building. Mm-hmm. I, Not that I consider it a waste to have written it. Duly noted, duly noted. Like, um, well, I suppose the next question is, so why did this uh, game get delayed for so long? Because it was very hard to write, to get it to work, to get the, the puzzles working correctly. Um, it was just... Uh, an incredible, a, an incredible grind because it was by far the most internally complicated game we've done. Um, and, um, you know, the testing for it uh, w- was months and months and months and months. A lot of the problems have been mercifully blanked from my memory, though. <laughs> Uh, I can imagine it just being hellish. In retrospect, probably, but at the time, it was, uh, you know, it, it was an engrossing project. Right. Well, so how did you get it all to like work together eventually? Just, you know, step on the bug and <laughs> move on to the next one. Ah, just uh, one bit of a time. 
It's the way it always works. Right. So I suppose the question at this point is, what precipitated your exit from Seertech? Um, we had differences about the future direction of the company and the projects that I wanted to do after um, Wizardry 4. Um, and, you know, it was pretty clear that, that uh, they wanted to take things in a different direction. And uh, so we um, worked out a, a parting of the ways. And uh, uh, I went off to do my thing, and they went off to do their thing. Not the first time we've heard that on this show, but it, but it sometimes comes to that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's I've never had any regrets about um, uh, moving on, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, as things turned out, it turned out pretty okay for me. So I'm I'm quite happy with it. Indeed. Right. So, uh, did you go to work at anywhere else in like the video game industry, or was it straight on to Animago? Uh, actually, Animago was um, kind of a side project from the next game project that I worked on, um, which was I was we were trying to build a. Um, nationwide multiplayer game network with uh, what would have been a very early MMO. Um, And I basically spent about a year working on the the hardware and software design of how to do it. Um, And then moved over to Japan because I got some funding to do uh, a pilot project on it. and moved over to Japan to to work on that. Um, at the same time, I moved over there to chase a girl. Um, but um, by about six months after I got to Japan, the, the sort of econ bubble popped, and the funding for the um, the game project uh, kind of died out. Um, but this little side thing that we were doing just for fun, which was the, the anime, um, took, on, took on a life of its own. And so I ended up staying in Japan for six years working on that. Wow. Uh, I'm like, well, um, when did you first notice anime? Um, well, Ro Adams has a big part to play in that too, because uh, he was one of the founders of Animago. Uh, while we were working on Wizardry 4, uh, he um, got involved with the Cornell Japanese Animation Society. Um, and uh, so he brought me a bootleg tape and said, you know, it'd be fun if we could somehow subtitle uh, these videos so that we can um, you know, show them to the to the fans at, at his club meetings. And this was about the time that the Macintosh 2 came out and I'd managed to get a video board that would let you overlay graphics on top of, of video. So I was able to do this, but I had the idea, well, you know, I'm going to Japan all the time. Um, why don't 
I see if I can't get a few licenses and we can like actually like release legitimate copies and sell them. And, uh, after we picked ourselves off the floor from falling down laughing at this utterly stupid idea, um, we decided to give it a try, and that's how the company started. Oh, so how did you search for anime back in? We're talking about the late '80s, right? Mm, yes. And, um, well, like, how did you like find, say, Metal Skin Panic Maddox so one? Um, I rode around to the um, Japanese. Um, trading companies in New York to find out if they had any contacts that could get licenses. And the um, there's a company called Fujisanka Communications International, which is sort of the international arm of Pony Canyon. And um, they had the um, rights to, to Maddox and a couple other things. And uh, so and we licensed it for a very small amount of money and put out a tape to see what would happen. And, you know, it turned out that there was a market for it. <laughs> Indeed. Um, it's worth mentioning, I think Animego is one of the oldest uh, distributors still around. We are the oldest survivor. There were a couple other companies that started just about the same time as we did. They basically, you know, had the same sort of idea and went off and did it in their, um, in their own particular way. Indeed. Like, I think, uh, well, I, I think Viz might predate you, but that's kind of a different thing, because Viz got established here as a manga company, and they got into anime later. Yes. But it's all semantics at this point. You were definitely one of the old school. And Central Park Media, I think they bought uh, U.S. Manga. Yeah. Uh, Central Park Media, uh, U.S. Manga Corps was Central Park Media's label, and CPM started after us. Um, Streamline Pictures would, had been doing this sort of thing for years, but they, they had not been doing the home video. They did, they'd been focusing on movies and in particular dubbing them, whereas we, you know, because we couldn't afford to do any dubbing, we were doing subtitles. Right. Um, so, but, 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 but I'm just trying to remember the name of it. There was, I guess it was, Viz that started doing stuff at about the same time. Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, they, yeah, I think even like 80 Visions a couple of years before, uh, after this. Oh, yeah, 80 Visions was definitely in sort of like the second wave. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so was it hard marketing um, some of these early titles like, uh, you know, Bubblegum Crisis? You know, uh, let's use this as an example. Like, Bubblegum Crisis is a. You know, was a very in, different thing than we saw in the states, especially during then. Like, were people concerned over like the tone or the violence or anything like that? No, not really, because you know we we were definitely selling to the niche market of people who already know knew about anime. Um, so there were, you know, again there were a couple of magazines that you where you could place ads and. Uh, there were a couple of distributors that would get you into video stores and, and occasionally into rental. Um, you know, just like the computer business, you know, 10 years before. It's the same sort of process. Oh, yeah. 
Now, uh, when you were over directly in Japan, did you like negotiate with the with like the Japanese companies directly? Yeah. And was that a difficult process? Because I've I've, I've heard stories of you know like negotiating with Japanese companies, and it's kind of hard. Um, the first few contracts required a lot of patience. Um, actually, uh, I remember the the first time I had uh, meetings with a bunch of different companies actually in Japan. Um, they were arranged for me by Toshio Okada, uh, who was one of the founders of Gynax. And um, he said, why don't you come over and do a computer game convention for me, and I'll make a bunch of appointments for you. And he also provided me with an interpreter. So I went around with this interpreter for about a week going to all of these different meetings. Um, and so my last night there, I was having dinner with him, and um, and I was kind of complaining a little bit. You know, the, the meetings had gone well, but nobody really seemed like they were um, too interested in in um, in doing anything. And he just looked at me and said, "That's because everybody wants to be the second person to do business with you." <laughs> and it turned out he was absolutely right. Uh, because, um, you know, our initial release had been done through the Fujisaki Communications, which was the sort of international trading arm. It wasn't one of the actual um, production um, management companies in Japan. So that sort of didn't count. But after we um, got a license from one of the Japanese companies eventually for writing Bean, um, you know, suddenly it became very easy. And once, once the word got around that, yeah, we actually paid money and we actually paid royalties and we were easy to do business with, the, um, the, the word got around and, and suddenly, you know, it was very easy to, to make, uh, make deals. That's interesting. That is very interesting. I, 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 another question is, I suppose, uh, did you ever have to deal with production committees? Um, usually not, um, oftentimes they would all, there would be like one company that was sort of designated to, to deal with international licensing. Hmm. That's good. Then again, that, that might've been much less of a thing back then. Whereas, you know, the way anime was constructed, you know, there was, I, I can't say there was more money for it, but you know, there was, you know, it was had more to do with the economy, let's just say. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it it's 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 never really been a problem for us to 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 license stuff. The issues are basically, you know, you know, can we afford the license? Do we think we can make money releasing the title? And you know, are there any issues with like materials? Right. Um, you know, assuming those can all be you know straightened out, you know. Uh, it's relatively straightforward. Right, and uh, indeed, and Animega was uh, one of the early giants of uh, North American anime. Um, uh, did you expect your business to grow uh, that big, I suppose? Well, um, I obviously didn't expect it since we started the company as a joke. <laughs> but uh, and, and it did become 
a nice little business. I don't think it was ever a big business. Well, I mean, obviously um, not big as in like anime boom, but yeah. um, we, we deliberately kept it small because we just wanted to work on projects that that you know that I felt were interesting. I mean, I wasn't going to waste my time working on a title that I didn't like, even though I thought it might make me a lot of money, um, because, you know, actually my experience is that a couple of times when I sort of gave in and said, eh, yeah, I'm not too happy about it, but it, it's going to make a lot of money, so I guess we, should, we ought to do it. Uh, turned out it didn't make any money at all. <laughs> so I very quickly learned you know, to just do projects that I enjoy and, you know, if they make a little money, fine. And every once in a while I'll, I'll strike it lucky and, and, um, a project will do really well. And, and that means I get to do more projects. Oh, indeed. And I'm like, I suppose we should talk about some of your more notable ones, like, uh, starting with the bubblegum crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, this one you, uh, recently remastered in fact. Yeah, we released it um, a little over a year ago on Blu-ray in a limited edition set. And what made you want to uh, remaster Bubblegum Crisis for Blu-ray? Mostly it was I was interested in investigating a new business model um, because um, the, the, the fundamental problem that that content producers face today is the fact that, you know, everything is, you know, how do you, how do you um, stay in business when, you know, bits are free, when, you know, everything is available online somewhere, you know, at like zero cost, zero delay, you know, what, how do you structure a business in such an environment? Um, and so the Kickstarter project that we did for Bubblegum Crisis was an attempt to, uh, to try out a solution to that problem, which was, um, to, um, instead of not so much selling the actual product, but, um, giving people the opportunity to be part of the actual process of that product being created. Um, the kind of uh, elevator pitch um, version of this idea that I give people is um, you can copy a Disney movie, but you can't copy a trip to Disneyland. Um, So we wanted to um, come up with a way to let people work on the project, to allow them to uh, provide feedback, to guide how the project evolved, um, to you know expose the how things are actually done in the sausage factory, so to speak, um, and and see if that was uh, an interesting way to 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 use my time and effort, and it t- turned out to work pretty well. Um, so we did it again. We just got a product that's just about to come out in a couple of months, and we're just about to start our third Kickstarter, actually, this weekend. Oh, uh, what are you aiming to kickstart next? Actually, uh, the next one is Writing Bean, which is, again, you know, one of our very earliest mm-hmm. releases. Um, 
and uh, uh, you know we are going we're going to release it on Blu-ray with a bunch of special features and some extra goodies and it's you know all sorts of crazy stuff. I mean we uh, uh, we're always looking for like interesting ideas from the actual backers, um, right. so that so that because we you know it turns out that they come up with the best ideas. Hmm. And they come up, you know, in every one of these projects, a backer has come up with some idea where I just looked at it and says, I don't care that that's going to cost me several thousand dollars to do. It is a moral imperative to do this. Hmm. Right. So what were the uh, ideas that the backers gave you for um, Otaku No Video and Bubblegum Crisis? Well, um, one of them was uh, to, in Otaku No Video, um, we, uh, they, uh, some people asked for SDH subtitles, not just subtitles, but subtitles with little sound effects, um, <laughs> which at, when you think about it is a good idea because for hearing impaired people, that's the one thing they don't get out of the subtitles is the sound effects. Right. Right. Okay. Um, Another person pinged me and said, hey, have you considered changing your uh, color choices for subtitles? Because we, we have a sort of a set of standard colors that we use for the various subtitles when they have multiple people talking at the same time on the screen. Um, we like to use different colors for each person so it's easier to tell them apart. Um, well, um, this person emailed me and said, hey, I'm colorblind. Right. And you know, your color choices are okay, but they could be better. So I actually went to all the backers and I came up with several alternatives and I, I just polled my backers and said, like, I want to know, you know, which, which ones you like the best, which choices, and, you know, if you're uh, in particular, and whether or not you, uh, you have um, uh, a particular type of color blindness, um, you know, and which ones look best for you. And we came up with better color choices that I'm now going to use in future projects. We also ended up doing this little um, 40 millimeter figure of the, um, of the main character, Misty May. Um, you know, because somebody came to me and said, you know, hey, I do this, I do this kind of modeling, you know, and casting, you could do this. And so we added that to the project. I mean, uh, it, all these things are kind of like, they were not things that were even on my radar. Okay, but because I got somebody else's perspective on it, I was able to look at it and say, yeah, actually, that is a very good idea. So I'll do it. I, I had an interesting question about subtitles. Crunchyroll does this thing, especially with shows like Gintama that have a lot of esoteric cultural references. They added a special subtitle that occasionally explains a Japan-specific joke. Have you guys ever done or considered doing that? Oh, we've done that since the beginning. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember going to Animator's website uh, back in the 90s to look up uh, liner notes for Urusu Yatsura. Yeah. 
as long as you don't go to Keikaku means plan levels. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, uh, Robert, you were saying? Yeah, we, we, we not only did the liner notes and some of the titles we released like uh, for Kimmergarten on Gerard, I think we had like a forty page liner note booklet. Uh-huh. Um, but for the really super important stuff, we actually subtitle and we actually super, we put them at the top of the screen. We call them super titles, where we'll explain some particular important cultural uh, thing. Yeah, I, I remember that uh, Urusei Yatsura. Like, uh, uh, there's a reference to Iskandar in uh, the first episode. <laughs> yeah, and that's a reference to Space Battleship Yamato. Uh, it's like I always appreciated those. Uh, just so you know. Yeah, I thought I remembered that, but I wasn't. I wasn't sure if all of our listeners were familiar. Yeah. Uh, I suppose we should uh, maybe go further into like, um, well, uh, Macross. How did you get Macross? Oh, uh, that that took years to get that. That was one of the licenses that was difficult to get um, mm-hmm. because there are you know a lot of people involved, and in, actually we licensed it from Harmony Gold. Um, and um, that was actually that was done back in 2001. Actually, got released in 2001, and it was sort of like a Kickstarter even then. Uh, we didn't collect the money in advance, but we did the project because we got like 5,000 people or something, some huge number that said, "If you do this, we will buy it." Um, so we ended up spending over a quarter of a million dollars restoring the video doing new transfers, and then um, literally almost sometimes frame by frame going in, in and cleaning up dust and other things on the video. It was, a, it was a pretty amazing job. Yeah, Mac, I think you have that set? I, I did. I had to sell it because I'm poor, but I plan on reacquiring it at some point. <laughs> I, I had one follow-up question, though. How does it feel to be part of the only company to survive remastering Macross? Because a lot of others have tried and failed. I mean... Was it, was it worth it? <laughs> oh, oh, definitely. I, I mean, Macross is such a classic series. I mean, like I said, I, with only a couple of exceptions, everything I've worked on was something that I worked on because I really enjoyed it personally. Mm. Um. And, you know, I think that, you know, and I think that hopefully shows in the, the level of, of detail that we, we tried to put into these titles. Uh, but, um, you know, Animago has, has always been a small company, and one of the reasons it's stayed small is because that's sort of a low-risk strategy. Um, I, I never wanted to bet the company on any particular thing. So it's all like taking a, a lot of little risks rather than a couple of big ones. Well, and it definitely shows. I mean, since you guys are, are still around, we get to, uh, we get to enjoy your uh, exceptional taste for another generation. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe another 10 years and I'm going to retire. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, it's also worth noting that uh, Anime Go not only does anime titles, but does uh, samurai titles. Yeah, we did quite a few. Yeah. Well, how did you get into, uh, I believe, uh, Jidai Geki? Jidai Geki. Um, actually, uh, the way that all got started, um, 
we were always looking for um, different things to do. I mean, you know, I, when everybody is zigging, I like to zag, you know, because I, I, I think there's always, it's, that's always the more interesting area. Um, so what happened was we were at Toho and we were licensing some anime titles and um, just at the end of the meeting, I said, oh, by the way, have you guys got anything like completely off the wall that you think I might like? And um, the two guys uh, that were the manager and his assistant, they, they talked for a second and the assistant went off and he came back and he came back with a stack of brochures and, and literally brushing the dust off these things. They've been in like a back corner for a couple of years probably. And um, puts them down in front and they're all like live action titles. So I lo- start looking through them and like the third from the top was Lone Wolf and Cub. Oh, <laughs> So it's like I take a look at it and set it aside. Well, maybe we can do something with this. <laughs> and at the time it was a risk because, you know, nobody's really doing that. Um, but I looked at it and said, you know, low risk bet, interesting title, got a history. You know, there are going to be some people who know it. And if it works out, then that's a whole new market. And it did. What are some of the other samurai films you've released? We did a whole bunch of the Zatoichis. I think we did like. God, at least a dozen Zatoichi films. Uh, we did uh, the Namuri Kyoshiro films. Oh, God, there's so many of them. Uh, we did the uh, Shinobi Nomono films, which were the, the first, like, real ninja ninja films from the 60s. Um, a whole bunch of films from, uh, uh, like, Shintaro Katsu films and, and, you know, different actors. Um, we've done a couple of art films. We did an interesting recent science fiction film, um, The Clone Returns Home, which uh, is, is really, you know, it's one of these sort of intellectual SF films. Um, you know, just basically, we've been all over the place. We've done, um, we did a film about like uh, we've done a I basically have a rule that you know uh, I won't do anything that would embarrass my mom in terms of a title but fortunately my mom is incredibly cool so we get to, we've got to do um, some some pretty crazy stuff over the years I think you picked up like the Lady Snowblood films we did the original Lady Snowblood, and then later on we helped uh, Quentin Tarantino get the, put them together with the people in Japan to get the music rights because the theme song to that is, is the ending credits theme for Kill Bill Volume 1. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that must have been an experience. It was basically us, you know, his assistant calls up and we, we go, oh, sure, you need to talk to this person, this person, this person. And then we sent off a couple of emails saying, you know, they're going to get in touch with you and blah, dee, dee, blah, dee, dee, blah. I mean, you know, it didn't take that long. Okay. Yeah, that sounds a bit more, well, normal. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, but it's just some, one of these weird little connections. Yeah, yeah. Uh, believe me, we can understand. Yeah, like, just the amount of people in the we've had on this program this season. <laughs> oh, but, yeah, so the, the anime Kickstarter stuff is definitely seeming to be the start of a new trend. Because, well, you know, like I'm looking at two anime projects on uh, crowdfunding sites right now, uh, Skip Beat and uh, The Vision of Escaplone. Yes, I, I saw those two. Um, I know the, um, the young woman who's doing um, Skip Beat, and I hope she does pretty well with it. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, the Escaplone stuff, you know, again, they're... They're exploring the parameter space of what you can do. They're, they're, they're using that as sort of a marketing test to see whether or not it's going to be cost-effective for them to do a new dub, right. which is, I think, a perfectly reasonable thing to do. Yeah. Um, I know some people have been up in arms over the Escaplone thing for two reasons. One, ADV, uh, um, uh, Funimation is doing the uh, Kickstarter here, and you know, Funimation is the biggest uh, anime distributor out there. But I'm like, you know, if the market's risky, it's the market's risky. You know, uh, more it's, you know, people are upset that they're doing a new dub. And I don't think people understand why they're doing a new dub. It has nothing to do with the old dub being bad or anything. Yeah, apparently there are some scenes in the series that were either not localized or were added in a later version in the Japanese or something. So there, there is no existing dub dialogue for it. Right. And people are like, you know, why don't you just go back to the ocean group? And I'm like, I'm not sure how viable that is because, you know, we are talking a dub that is 20 years old. And yeah, the actors won't be available. Yeah. And even if they were available, they might not be able to perfectly replicate those characters. And the sound quality is probably going to be different because we are talking 20 years of recording technology. It's like it actually makes a lot more sense to do a new dub. You know, it's like, and I'm going to note, you know, this doesn't mean that the old dub has to go away or anything. It's just, you know, they have to do this if they're going to do a proper new uh, version of this series over here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, and that leads me to a question on your end. Have you ever thought of doing a Kickstarter for dubbing or have you always been like subtitle only? Oh, sure. Uh, we've, we've, done many dubs in the past. Um, I'm uh, not sure I would do a Kickstarter to do a dub um, because that's a fairly large project and there are a lot of uh, sort of a lot of parts of that that would would not be entirely in my control. You've got to depend on a lot of the people whereas with the, the kind of more intimate Kickstarters that I've been doing, you know, it's just um, literally uh, me and my wife as the core team, plus uh, a sort of small group of of actual backers who volunteer to do um, production work on on the on the project because they're particularly interested in a particular aspect of it, uh, and. Um, so, so uh, you know, it's a very tight team, and and control stuff. Um, yeah. Uh, but are, are we having a, a audio problem? 
Yeah, yeah your 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 end is getting kind of staticky for some reason. Oh, oh, I think I know what that is. Um, I'm just going to have to dis- disconnect my mic for just a second. Hold on. That's fine. All right. Trust me, it, technical problems happen on this program. <laughs> it's our stock and trade. Uh, can you hear me now? Yes. 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 yes, yes much perfect. better. Okay, yeah. Yeah. There, there's some. It's, it's bizarre problem with USB mics on a Macintosh. Oh, I have the okay. same thing. That's why I got rid of mine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So, so, yeah, your last uh, point was uh, got drowned out by the static. So hopefully... Okay, so where should I rewind to? <laughs> well, I, I heard about the, you and your wife are, are the sole operation there, and then after that it started getting really... Okay. Out. Yeah, so so um, myself and Natsumi, my wife, uh, by the way, she was the interpreter uh, that uh, Toshio Okada set me up with for those original meetings. And when the business was over on Friday night, I asked her on the date, and that's how that all gets started. But anyway, um, another reason why I'm really glad I started the company. But uh, in any case, um, so so it's just us and um, a few, um, you know, people who volunteer to do work on these particular little projects um, and do some insanely good work, I might add. I mean... Uh, some of the things they've done are, are clear labors of love. Um, but, you know, so, so we've got very tight control over that. So, um, you know, I can, I can, I don't have to, to take risks in terms of uh, depending on, on things that are outside of my control. Uh, so I tend to prefer that. Um, that's not to say that I, I wouldn't, under the right circumstances, do something. It's just a. It, it. I have to balance these things for any particular project. But I definitely am going to be doing different styles of projects than the ones I've done so far because I want to explore the the parameter space of, of what's available to do. Makes sense. All right. Uh, so, well. Um, so you mentioned previously that you, for the most part, you were worked on projects that you were interested in. Can you talk about the projects that you know were kind of picked up for business reasons? Uh, I prefer not to actually. <laughs> I mean, they weren't bad. It, they just they were just not my partic- particular style, mm-hmm. you know, and so. I, I let I let my business self kind of override my creative self. I guess is the right way to put it. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I've learned that that's usually a mistake. So, I mean, on the other hand, we've done like silly projects that have turned out to do incredibly well. I mean, uh, my wife ran into these Hello Kitty educational videos, these little six-minute videos of Hello Kitty learning some important life lesson. Um, And these, like, everybody had passed on these. And she looked at them and she thought there was a market there. And so I trusted her judgment, and I looked at them, and they were cute and funny. And so we dubbed them and released them, and you know they were in Walmart, and we sold a ton of them, and you know, that was a fun little project. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, have you ever looked at the streaming services? 
Yeah, we uh, some of our stuff is up on streaming. Um, you know, I'm not sure that 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 model really works for a little company like ours. I uh, could not hazard a guess. It's just you know, it seems like everyone's moving to streaming now, the anime world. Well, you know, we could always stream our stuff, and 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 a lot of, especially a lot of our live action stuff was, you know, streamed. It's on iTunes and all that sort of stuff. Um, but, you know, the the income is nice, but it's it's not sufficient in and of itself. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and and also there's you know there's a lot of people doing that. So they're all zigging. I want to zag. I want to try something different. I, I get where you're coming from. Plus, you know, there are still a lot of hardcore fans to buy physical. In fact, that's kind of what's propping up the Japanese anime industry right now. There, there is there is an aspect to it, and there's also the aspect of, of if, you know, if you can do something, you know, special and unique and limited edition, then uh, there are there's a group of fans that uh, really appreciate that. In fact, I was talking to to one of them uh, at a convention last year, and he had the most wonderful expression for the little extra knickknacks that you put in these limited edition sets that he said made them so special. He called them fetish goods. Uh, I've heard that term before. Though that's kind of more into the actual fetish goods that are in a lot of anime stuff. Well, you know, he wasn't using it in terms of, you know, weird fetishes. Mm-hmm. He was using it in terms of, in particular, things that he could physically hold. Indeed. Right. So, what is your take on the, both, both the modern uh, anime scene and, like, modern role-playing games? Well, um... I'm not really an anime fan. I enjoy it, um, but I, I don't go out of my way to like watch all the new series that are coming out there. You know, I'll I'll dip my feet into into um, uh, particular things, but you know, very few things like really. You know, suddenly I've got to binge watch it, um, and it's the same thing with games. I, I have I. For many years, I was just basically too busy doing, um, you know, things that interested me to uh, to actually play the more recent games. Although I must admit that that over um, the Christmas holidays, one of my sons got me into playing Fallout 4, um, and I ended up finding that I I could play that game. And even though I felt hungry, I wouldn't be bothered to eat. So I ended up losing 10 pounds over Christmas. Um, so, the, so I found a new way to diet, which I appreciated. <laughs> Ella, uh, have there been any recent anime series that piqued your interest? There's a couple that are going into development that I might be able to be helping out on, but I can't talk about them. Uh, I, I'm not talking about that regard. I'm talking about like any anime series you know that came out recently that somebody recommended to you and you really liked. To be honest, not really. Um, 
let me see, what was the last thing? The last thing I really watched was um, on Netflix, uh, Knights of Sidonia. Oh, I I didn't really like that one. Yeah, I watched the first season. It was okay. Second season, not so much. I couldn't get into the 3D animation of it all. Like, but that's a personal preference. Yeah, I I tend to like the older stuff, to be honest. Uh, I guess I'm a product of my times. It's possible. I mean, anime is a lot different than it was, you know, uh, even like 10 years ago. But, I mean, that's what things do. They change and evolve. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah. Uh, All right, so... Uh, we're getting low on time here, so just one final question. Um, can you talk about any of your future plans outside of the writing Dean Kickstarter at this point? Uh, well, I'm definitely going to be doing a few more Kickstarters. Uh, you know, I'm actually heading back to Japan in a couple of weeks um, to, uh, for some meetings on a couple of, of interesting projects that are uh, a little bit, uh, they're, they're going to be crowdfunding projects, but they're not going to be like the ones we've done previously. Um, and, um, you know, I'm still noodling around on, on the computers all the time. Uh, I don't generally write stuff for, um, for the public, although I occasionally put something out. Um, but uh, I'm certainly still a programmer. I program every day, uh, and I enjoy it greatly. It's actually fun because um, both of my sons, to their great dismay, have found that they like to be they like programming a little bit, and you know, even though it's this boring thing that their dad does. Um, so I'm actually kind of following them along as they take college courses. Uh, everyone has their passions. It's like, uh, as long as it matters to you, that's all there is. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, uh, Robert, um, uh, that'll about do it for this installment. Um, hopefully we'll have you back on the show in the future to talk about your next Kickstarter or um, whatever project you might have. You know? uh I'm certainly looking forward to seeing what you do next. You know, like, uh, as I said, I was a big fan of Animego back in the day, and uh, I'm glad to see that you're still doing what you're doing. Yeah, I feel like um, the guy uh, from uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, I'm not dead yet. I'm getting better. <laughs> uh, Bring out your dad. <laughs> All right, uh, so that'll about do it for this week. Um, we've, um, as always, we've got a lot of stuff ahead. Um, we've got MSP coming up uh, next. Mac, why don't you tell them what's going on there? Indeed. So be sure to join us at 11 p.m. for Moonhawk Studios Presents, Talk Shoe Channel 45815. Mm-hmm. We will be discussing the new Starship Moonhawk movie that I am in the process of making. There's actually two of them. There's a short film that is based on my book, The Death of Perseus, which uh, will be coming out later this year. 
And we'll also be talking about The Fire and the Forge, the prequel that started it all, which we're aiming for a first quarter 2017 release. Mm. So there's a lot of information there. Indeed. Uh, We were supposed to have Fred Wood of the Bandcast on the program. Unfortunately, uh, he had prior obligations that he had forgotten to pencil in on his calendar. So he will be back on March 16th. Right, and so the Fragment Silicon schedule is going to look like this. Um, On Friday, Friday evening, we are going to be doing a special uh, streaming session of the game Gunscape. We're going to be playing it for review. It is up to eight players, so... We are going to be looking for people like some of our regulars. Um, check the, our Steam group. We, uh, I'll remind you, we do have a Fragments of Silicon Steam group. Uh, more mm-hmm. information will be posted there. Yeah, our watch are free to play, play, so don't worry about that being an issue. Right. And um, the Fragments of Silicon review of Gunscape and Ninja Sentai DX is happening Sunday. And next week... And next week, we only have um, one episode to do, but uh, on March 9th, we will be interviewing Matt Rysel of Graphite Lab. They're developing the upcoming um, co-op Metroidvania platformer uh, Hive Jump. All right, so until next time, uh, be sure to tune uh, tune in to MSP after this, and I wish you good gaming.